let's pray. Really, Father, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for this evening. Uh, thank you for bringing us together to open up and study your word. I pray that your spirit would be with us, uh, that uh, you'd teach and instruct us and uh, correct us and uh, just renew our minds, uh, our hearts and minds by, by your word. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, we would never uh, receive uh, your truth, uh, your words, uh, if it wasn't by uh, by you uh, and by by your Holy Spirit and uh, the forgiveness and salvation that's in your Son. And so we thank you for your Son and for your Holy Spirit. And we pray that all of our words and everything that we do would be honoring and glorifying to you and that you'd uh, build us up uh, and that we would have uh, an eternal hope uh, in your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. Right. So uh, last week we went a little, uh, a little off track, and uh, I blame Ryan for that. That's okay. Uh, I accept it. Although to uh, to be completely fair, um, it was all Ryan's fault. Yeah. So, <laughs> but there, there may be there may be a couple couple of us who who joined in. So <laughs> um, the last thing that I was maybe going to say about that is kind of neat how connected with Eric's sermon though. Yes, um, it helped a lot. Yeah. Both. And I, I thought uh, he really highlighted, I, I was talking with uh, you two, uh, that one of the things that I want to highlight that he touched on was when dealing with issues of legalism and Christian liberty is sort of that dividing line between not turning the special days or whatever that somehow they become meritorious or uh, or that we, we start justifying ourselves yes, by, right. by these things or finding our blessing, our provision. Now, maybe for Jews or whatever, you know, uh, observing uh, Passover. I mean, we remember like with the, the Passover, just like we do um, hopefully every day, living every day in light of the resurrection. Uh, and when we get there together first day of the week, uh, we remember uh, what Christ has done. And so the, the scripture is a mean, means of grace and that remembering, that teaching. Uh, and I know uh, even for some some Messianic Jews that would maybe observe the, the Passover, they're connecting, they're binding it up with uh, with what Christ has done and uh, things like that. And so, so long as they're not putting the legalistic demands that you must uh, keep this otherwise you're not being well pleasing to God or uh, thing, things like that they have that freedom and so that dividing line not finding our provision our blessing our eternal inheritance eternal life our righteousness uh, in you know whatever days that people uh, choose uh, choose to observe uh, and then uh, we saw the issue of Paul, where you have to read that whole passage, where we were asking questions, you know, uh, you're, you're kind of asking some about the, the gods or whatever, how he's using this language. When we were early in the discussion in chapter 9, but then you get to 10, 11, he's going to say, by the way, you can't participate in the temple practice. Uh, the, the Israelites worship false gods in the wilderness, and they died. So we, we can't drink 
of the cup of the demons of the cup of the Lord. We can't participate in uh, the supper, you know, eating uh, before the idols and uh, the supper of the Lord. Uh, and so that issue of idolatry, I was even talking with Eric a little bit about that. If you know some of the mythology where it's like, okay, if we're talking about Christmas, it's one thing for people, if they want to exchange presents, they have that freedom. You know, you can exchange presents with uh, whoever you want. But when it comes to Santa Claus, St. Saint, Saint Nick, uh, he knows when you are sleeping. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness. Here you have a glorified saint. A lot of people don't even think of him as a saint today. Uh, who is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, and you have this works righteousness system uh, that is so utterly idolatrous. That whole mythology that's been built over—I mean, uh, centuries and centuries—and even like into our recent times—that uh, you know, Christians need to be aware of that that idolatry uh, and the, the deification of. Uh, of this glorified saint who's been turned into like a mythological uh, figure. Um, and so, you know, he, he knows, he knows everything when, when you're sleeping, when you're awake, all, all the children, um, he has the attributes of deity, you know, of God himself. And so something like that, uh, Eric was like, good example. <laughs> <laughs> um, but some of those things you, you don't even realize if maybe you grew up with that and you're like, well, you know, we, it was fun, uh, but it's like, uh, you know, we, we do have to hold everything up to scripture. And so the, the idolatry, uh, and then I just want to even rephrase to think about a little bit with uh, some of the Jews. Paul, when preaching the gospel, didn't prohibit them from uh, being Jews to be saved. And so the issue wasn't, you have to throw out your wardrobe of unmixed fibers you know, throw out all your clothes. Uh, stop making them how you make them. You know, stop knitting how you knit or whatever. Uh, you have to throw all that out and then repent and turn to Christ. He didn't put that burden upon them. No, you wear, wear what you wear. Uh, don't, don't worry about it. That's not what's important. Trust in Christ. Um, he didn't tell them they have to throw out uh, their diet and stop eating what they eat, stop cooking what they cook. You know, uh, if you have recipes or whatever, whether they're in your head, uh, don't make food like that anymore. Uh, and then repent turns Christ. No, he wasn't saying you have to stop living like a Jew to be uh, to be saved. And so that's part of the issue of then as people grow in their their liberty and the freedom that they have in Christ. Then for the sake of the gospel, uh, they might set, set some of those things aside um, for the sake of. Uh, being able to have like table fellowship and unity in the body. Uh, but some of those things, you know, whether they were in unmixed fibers or mixed fibers, that's not what's important. Unless they make it like an issue and say, no, we, we must keep this. Otherwise you're not in Christ or so. Were you just going to yeah, say one last thing there? Oh well, yeah. Just one other thing. I thought I'd give a good example of Timothy and Titus about Timothy being circumcised and Titus not being circumcised and, how big of a, I don't know, a stink he made about circumcision, and yet mm -hmm. he still circumcised Timothy just so that the offense of the gospel mm -hmm. would be the gospel itself, not anything else. Yeah. And so that that's where, uh, with uh, 
with Titus, that's where he put his foot down. It wasn't gonna wasn't gonna budge an inch, uh, no matter you know who who it was with. And at the time, he even said they didn't even make Titus you know do that. But it was it was later with the the Judaizers. Um, and then just one of the, the last things. So some of those distinctions between freedom and uh, liberty, uh, and considerations, idolatry, uh, and uh, not having to just stop being Jews. But I was also thinking that, maybe we'll look sometime, but David, some of the Psalms, uh, when he talks about repentance and his own repentance and uses himself as an example for other believers in the Psalms, uh, some of them he starts talking about the righteous man. And it might even be one of the Psalms that Paul draws on in Romans uh, chapter 4. But he talks about the, the man who's righteous. And yeah, sometimes you see those who, who keep keep uh, God's word, his law by his spirit. They have atonement. You know, Zechariah, Elizabeth, uh, uh, righteous, not sinless. Um, but he talks about the righteous man. And if you go through those entire Psalms, Who's the righteous man but the one who repents of his sin? And so part of the idea of righteousness in the Bible wasn't just, it wasn't just sinless perfection, but it was also repentance and turning to God, even, even in light of David's uh, great sin with uh, Bathsheba and against Uriah and having, having him killed. And so the one who's righteous uh, is one who, who repents. Uh, and so uh, there's just amazing sort of theology and teaching on repentance in, in the Psalms uh, that very much applies today. Let's uh, turn to Genesis. And we've already looked and covered uh, the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, is uh, it's in the beginning. Uh, uh, if uh, Moses wanted to uh, write it that way uh, and to convey that, that's exactly how he would write it in Hebrew. Uh, and some of the, the other views, uh, you know, the, there are too many discrepancies that he could have conveyed uh, in the beginning of uh, God creating, but instead it's in the beginning. And so now I want to uh, we see these uh, the very first verses that introduce uh, the the setting in, in time. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so this takes us uh, all the way back. And uh, the only one who precedes this is uh, God, uh, God himself. Uh, and so this is at the very beginning, uh, his uh, very first works uh, in creation, uh, bringing uh, the entire uh, creation, every living thing, uh, into existence uh, in six days and, and resting uh, on the seventh. And so God is the uncreated uh, creator, uh, and uh, the creation uh, was not. It's, it's the work, uh, it's the product of uh, God and uh, supernatural uh, creation, and that's what—that's uh, really what sets apart uh, a biblical uh, worldview and 
uh, what Moses uh, believed and the patriarchs believed in contrast to all the nations and the peoples around them uh, where uh, they had uh, their their gods in the primordial waters uh, and such, and it varied sometimes, uh, but they even had not just cosmogonies of the, the cosmos coming into being, but uh, theogonies of, of the gods themselves uh, coming into being and developing. Uh, and so you find similar ones, uh, whether it's Sumerian or Cadian or uh, Egyptian, uh, they have a lot of similar sorts of ideas. Uh, and so in, uh, for instance, uh, in some of the Egyptian uh, mythology, uh, you have, uh, which kind of developed and changed a bit over time, but you have like Atum, which I assume is probably related to, uh, not that it's damn important, but Adam or Atom, you know, uh, the, the, the oneness. Uh, you have the idea of like oneness and unity and things like that. But you have uh, Atum, who is in this inert state in the primordial waters. And the waters themselves are a deity, kind of, kind of like a mother goddess. Uh, and he emerges from, uh, from the waters and kind of brings himself into being and evolves and changes. Uh, and then you have uh, the first uh, primordial hill that emerges from the waters uh, and with maybe the, the rising of the sun uh, in uh, the world space and the sky and the atmosphere and all these things are deified uh, they're uh, personified in, in uh, deities that uh, that emerge uh, from him uh, in the creation itself and so uh, the the gods uh, it's kind of hard to even separate between panentheism uh, sometimes God is in all and pantheism God is all um Sometimes it, it's kind of all mixed and jumbled uh, together. And so Atum uh, can be identified with any of the gods uh, in, in creation. Uh, and so even the sun, which in its different uh, states uh, will be called like Horus, the son of Osiris, who is the god of the dead, the abode of the dead. And the Horus will rise in the east. And then uh, sometimes it calls him Ray. Uh, that might even be when he reaches like the pinnacle and they'll liken him to like a phoenix. Uh, they'll, they'll call him. But can, the sun can also be identified as Atum at his highest evolved like form and state. And so uh, out of all these things emerging, you have the gods themselves and, and the, the physical creation uh, emerging and evolving uh, from the, the oneness. Uh, and a lot of times they'll even use uh, just even sort of debased like metaphors and um, to even speak about some of the things it even speaks about Atum as like the bull of his mother uh, kind of I mean like incestuous like ideas and stuff like that in, uh, in his emerging uh, in this and so it's uh, there's a lot of, a lot of wickedness in their, their mythologies uh, and so what sets apart the creation account is that God is the one true living God and creator of all things. Uh, he is the creator of all things. Everything else is uh, created, uh, whether uh, whether spirits, invisible, heavenly, or uh, visible, uh, physical, earthly. Uh, God 
uh, he's the creator of, of all things, uh, Yahweh. And so you start in the beginning. We have a context in time uh, established, uh, the situation. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. A God who really needs no introduction. He's the, the central participant and agent uh, in the creation account, but really all that will follow, uh, the, the historical narrative throughout Genesis and uh, the creation of the, the man and the woman, uh, the pinnacle of his creation, uh, the spreading of humanity, uh, the, their rebellion, their destruction, uh, the, the nations, and the, their, their scattering at the Tower of Babel, calling Abraham uh, out and uh, forming him into a people and Isaac and Jacob and uh, the patriarchs. Uh, and so God is, he's uh, uh, the central focal uh, participant and agent uh, in all of these things. And even books like uh, we've talked about Esther, uh, even when he's not mentioned, uh, in some ways God's presence is all the more uh, recognized and felt in a book like Esther where he's orchestrating uh, everything. And so in the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. And now this will be our focus, uh, verse 2 tonight. We're now, here we, we see that something happened. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What happened? That's kind of a central question that drives a, a narrative, a story uh, forward in time, um, telling us what happened. God created the heavens and the earth. But now we pause for a moment. There aren't going to be events, there aren't going to be things happening, but it's telling us of the, the state of things. Uh, we're going to see that, uh, that the earth uh, is incomplete, uh, it's unfinished. And so a lot of times uh, in a narrative, uh, I mean, you, you can expect it, that there will be a problem introduced or some unresolved issue uh, that uh, the following scene uh, and narrative and story uh, will uh, bring to uh, to resolution. And so here we, we see instead of what happened, uh, we see the state of the, the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so this was the state of things uh, and spirit, you know, this is kind of ongoing, was hovering over the face of the waters. And so you don't have an event that moves things over, forward in time. Uh, but we see that everything, it's, it's in a state of incompletion. Uh, and the rest is going to bring it uh, to its completion. And so let's go ahead and read through the first uh, three uh, days And then we'll focus a little more on uh, some of the, the meaning. We'll be a little more focused tonight than, uh, than usual, but just because there's some, a lot of times, confusion about without form and void and, you know, kind, kind of what's, what's that all about. And, uh, some have even come up with some uh, interesting theories and such. And so it helps kind of set apart uh, the creation account and understand what follows. You need to know what's the unresolved issue or the problem here, here it's not really a problem, but uh, what's unresolved uh, to understand uh, the significance of uh, 
it began to come to resolution. So notice as we read through this, we have the introduction of the, the setting, uh, introduction of God, central agent, participant, his spirit, uh, the heavens and the earth, uh, these entities, these things. Uh, and then he's going to start bringing uh, this to completion. And so where it's without form and void or barren and empty, uh, he's going to start uh, creating a fruitful habitation. Uh, and where there's darkness, he'll bring light. Uh, and where there are just waters over the face of the earth, we'll see the separations and bringing the earth forth, uh, turning it into a, a productive uh, habitations uh, to then fill on days uh, four through six. Yep. Uh, oh. Just thinking that in John 1 1, when they echo this, mm-hmm. only through Christ being the fulfillment of that, that the uh, formless, the darkness and the formless, mm-hmm. is terribly important because that is also the state of repentance, mm-hmm. where you recognize your own formlessness, your own void, and only God will allow that to happen. And it's, in, it's because of God. He said, You know what? I'm. I'm and John John really draws he doesn't use the without form and void but you, you mentioned the the darkness yeah uh, he draws on the darkness, darkness. imagery I mean, I thought that thing, I kind of lump it together which is maybe wrong and here here you you have no light you know he's gonna bring light in but yeah John now he's looking at uh, the human condition after the fall dead in our sin. Uh, in trespasses and rebellion against God, uh, in bondage, enslaved to sin, uh, in the condemnation and death that's upon us. And there he's speaking about now now the word made flesh coming into the creation, uh, into uh, the darkness, uh, and he's the the true light. Uh, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, But they did not, it can be kind of a play, you know, they did not, uh, recognize him or or uh, can be kind of the idea of extinguishing or whatever kind of, or uh, seizing seizing hold of whether comprehending or putting the light out um, there's kind of word plays in there so yeah the seeing how that's drawn in there but the two different contexts here one of creation uh, in just you know the void of darkness without light absence of light but there you have a moral darkness and rebellion of a sinful man. So let's go ahead and read. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse. And separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. 
God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And so in the first three days, just even understanding with, without form and void, or we'll, we'll look at some of that language a little more, and seeing the, the darkness, it already kind of gives you an idea of what's going on, what's unresolved here uh, in the, the meaning of it. Uh, because as, as you uh, come to this, uh, you see uh, the creation, you see uh, these different habitations, uh, you see light coming in where there's darkness, uh, you see the, these waters that were uh, covering the earth, uh, the, the face of the deep, these deep waters, uh, you see the, the separation, the expanse between them, waters below and above, uh, and the, the land coming forth, and then vegetation, uh, for uh, which he's going to give to his creatures at the end of day three. And so now you have uh, fruitful habitation and environments which he's going to uh, fill with uh, the luminaries on day four uh, in the, uh, the heavens, uh, the uh, fish and the birds uh, in the seas and uh, flying in the heavens and, and on the land as well. Uh, and then with uh, the land animals uh, and man is the, the pinnacle uh, of his creation. That he gives dominion and then gives them uh, the vegetation. And so... I want to look more uh, first at uh, verse 2. Uh, the, the earth was without form uh, and, uh, and void. Uh, and so here uh, some have even used it. We won't get into it too much. Uh, but it really wasn't based on on the interpretation of scripture so much, but a reaction to uh, geology and they kept extending uh, the, the age of things and their estimates of the earth. Uh, and then uh, saying that the fossil record was over uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, eventually millions and then billions of years. And so you have all this uh, death uh, over, over this time. And so uh, there were some who we're looking for a reason to uh, fit a secular account that tries to explain everything apart from God uh, purely by uh, purposeless, meaningless, uh, impersonal, uh, physical mechanisms and chance uh, that everything had to be explained by. Uh, they're trying to fit that with the Bible. Uh, and so one theory that was come up with was the gap theory. Uh, where this is not a creation account, but it's a recreation account. That this language, uh, that uh, the earth was without form and void, or they'll translate, became without form and void. 
and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here, the try and draw on uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah, that there was a, a judgment with the fall of Satan uh, and rebellion, a previous rebellion. And so there, there was a, a judgment, and that explains the fossil record. And it wasn't so much based off of Scripture, but it was based more trying to fit uh, and accommodate uh, secular, uh, anti-supernatural uh, theories on the origin of everything. Sort of a, uh, the growing uh, secular uh, mythology of, of the universe, which actually has a lot in common, uh, even through uh, when you have the, the spontaneous... Uh, whether the universe is supposed to exist eternally as, as the singularity or uh, whether it came into existence out of nothing and self-organized itself. And, uh, and then you have universal common descent after chemical evolution and everything evolves and emerges. It actually has a lot in common uh, with uh, the Egyptian accounts and such, with the, the evolving of everything and, and the changing from, uh, from the oneness. It has to be explained by itself. Uh, and so whether... Uh, physical, uh, material monism, everything is physical, it's all one, or, or material, uh, or whether you have the, the deities and the physical that emerge from it. So this was part of the uh, the, the gap theory. I remember reading even uh, this uh, commentator, Alan P. Ross, and he, he's usually a good scholar, I remember reading this in college. And I'll just quote this part. He, he draws on some things before, uh, but from his uh, uh, Creation and Blessing, A Guide to the Study and Exposition of Genesis. He states, In the first part of Genesis 1 verse 2, there is thus an ominous, uncomfortable tone. The clauses describe not the result of divine creation, but a chaos at the earliest stage of this world. It is not the purpose of Genesis to tell the reader how the chaos came about any more than it is interested in identifying the serpent in chapter 3. Uh, the expositor must draw some conclusions from other passages with similar descriptions. If one can posit that the fall of Satan, Ezekiel 28, brought about the chaos in God's original creation, then Genesis 1 describes a recreation or God's first act of redemption, salvaging his world and creating all things new. This picture is similar to how it will be at the end of the age when God judges the world and then makes all things new. But Genesis is more interested in God's work as creator, and so the circumstantial clauses report chaos only, the chaos only briefly. And so now the creation account becomes a judgment and recreation account. Just from verse 2. And that gives the room for however many hundreds of thousands or it quickly extended as you're going you know, through the 18th century and 19th and uh, then to millions and then to billions and however much time you want, there's your gap. You can fill it, you can fit it in right, right in there and you got all the fossils and all this death and disease and decay and destruction and thorns. Uh, so uh, that, that's kind of the, the explanation for it. But part of the thing, I, I want to just like look at that, but here there are those that kind of identify this sort of chaos 
And kind of what do you mean by that? The term has maybe changed a little bit in the English language. If you're just saying everything's not fully ordered, not fully created, okay. But a lot of times chaos is associated with uh, with disorder, uh, with uh, oftentimes uh, even with uh, evil uh, and uh, maybe chaos like a war zone or, you know, if chaos erupts in a populated area or in a city or something like that. And so a lot of times you see it bound up with, you know, we associate with uh, with disorder and things like that. And some of those things would be more kind of in connection with, and now if scripture teaches that, fine, but would be more in connection with some of the, the pagan mythologies uh, we'll we'll look at some of them, like with uh, Tiamat in the Sumerian mythology, where you have the chaotic seas, uh, and there's kind of a male female part of these primordial seas, and I think it's Marduk who ends up uh, cutting her in two and uh, putting her carcass in the heavens, and that kind of becomes heaven or whatever. Some will say, "Well, that's what Genesis is drawing on," or <laughs> whatever, and so you have you have this chaos or the early gods that have to be subdued and such like that. And we're going to see God's just not done yet. You know, that's, uh, that's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to comment about what you said about some people will take something like Ezekiel and look back on Genesis to really understand Mm -hmm. what it's Mm -hmm. saying. And I find going back to the Jehovah witnesses, you know, they'll fully admit that, Christ created heaven and the earth. John is pretty explicit mm-hmm. about that. In other passages in the New Testament, and I kind of see almost the same argument here, where it's like, so you're a Jew and you've got the first five books, mm-hmm. and you're reading through this. Well, who created everything? Mm-hmm. Well, it's Yahweh. I mean, you can't get around that. Yeah. Well, then now you're telling me all of a sudden we get to the New Testament in John one, and now all of a sudden it's Christ. And you got to oh, insert Christ here. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's like to me, when we're reading through this, we need to think about the context at the time and what is it saying. And when it seems like there's something different in the New Testament, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we need to be looking back and say, oh, wait, Christ is Yahweh. You know, they're mm-hmm, one, they're mm-hmm. together, they're one essence. Mm-hmm. And really taking scripture as a whole, not trying to take, well, this is the last thing, so that's how we should bring it back over here because he wasn't quite clear, but he cleared it up later on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, scripture does draw on itself. And, and being careful to understand what's the primary background in context is the New Testament, the primary background in context uh, for uh, for the first books of scripture that, that God made and were comprehensible and written to his people at that time. Or does that provide the background for the New Testament? You know, the primary background. And it's not that there are certain shared, um, for instance, there, there are shared cultural conventions, there are shared, that you can get through all of the Bible that might help understand something that came before. You know, if they share certain cultural practices, um, Sometimes how you have to be careful how they use the text of scripture, but you already have to kind of understand that text of scripture to understand how they're using it. But that, you know, that might uh, be helpful and worth taking into consideration. But understanding the order that these things were written in and reading them in their context, it meant something at the time. Uh, it was understandable. God spoke to his people and 
Uh, it, it wasn't, uh, God wasn't just babbling and speaking nonsense until uh, thousands of years later. Uh, and so you have to keep the, the context in mind and know that later authors, uh, Revelation's progressive, God can say more. He doesn't have to say everything all at once. <laughs> you know, can he start at creation and, and re- reveal more about man and woman and the garden and the nations and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Israel. And, uh, and so he, he can reveal and, and speak, uh, speak more uh, that uh, we learn from. So let's just uh, we'll look at some of this uh, terminology, which uh, a lot of times is written uh, without uh, form and uh, void. A lot of times identified with sort of a chaos. And again, okay, what do you mean by that? Are you just saying it's incomplete, it's not fully ordered or whatever? But uh, how would we use the word chaos? A lot of times I think picks up connotations and associations that uh, don't do it uh, justice here. Uh, and so here, uh, let me just read from uh, Kenneth Matthews and his commentary uh, as we're going to look at uh, some of this language of uh, to, uh, tohu and uh, bohu. Tohu, vibo, uh, tohu, uh, or, uh, yeah, uh, tohu, vabohu. Um, language that's uh, paired together uh, without uh, form and void. So uh, Kenneth Matthews, uh, in his commentary, says, it's a very good commentary, by the way. Uh, some have taken the phrase uh, tohu uh, vabohu uh, as a negative emptiness, a, a negative emptiness, a dark abyss, like that of the Greek idea of primeval chaos. Cites uh, from a Hesiod, a Theogony. Or alternatively, a disordered conglomerate, a kind of watery mass, which opposes creation. Uh, the LXXs, or Greek, Greek translation, uh, unseen and unformed, unseen and unformed, so that's what they have in uh, that Greek uh, translation, may have influenced the now common understanding chaos and undifferentiated mass or vacuous non-entity. We will find that uh, tohu and bohu uh, describe a wasteland and empty land. Uh, bohu is found only in tohu va bohu, uh, occurring in uh, in this verse, uh, Genesis 1, verse 2, and in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. Also, uh, the two terms are in parallel in Isaiah 34, verse 11. Uh, the etymology of the word remains a mystery, and we are left with the meaning of uh, tohu, uh, to clarify the sense of the couplet. And so some of the different ideas that he's pointing, pointing to, uh, negative emptiness, dark abyss, like they have the Greek idea of primeval chaos, uh, or a disordered conglomerate, kind of watery mass, which opposes creation. I think part of the key thing between those two is sort of the negative view of it. You know, there, there's, something, there's something negative. Uh, and... A lot of times it's viewed as, you know, God has to subdue the, the chaos. 
and it almost has kind of like a, du du a dualism, a, a kind of a dualistic I idea uh, where you have good and evil and God and uh, sort of this chaos that needs to be subdued. Yep? Well, I see kind of a pattern myself, and I'm not going to put this argument to rest because I'm sure people are going to argue all the mm -hmm. time about this Hebrew word, but uh, I think this primordial soup that we're talking about here, that uh, it can be as impersonal and as unknowable and unfathomable as it can be. Because I think the fact is, in John 1, 1, I'm, I, and this is just humongously, incredibly big. Whereas in Jesus, God gets a little bit more personal. Mm -hmm. Here it's impersonal. It can be as impersonal as you like. I don't care. God still is master over it. And here, and in John 1, uh, God's personal now. He's become a little bit, he's getting to us as sinners and our personal condition. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like going from the impersonal to the personal. So I, I don't mind that I don't have a, a real fix on it and that I don't have another microscope. Well, we're going to take a look at it. So that's, uh, uh, we'll, we'll look at how, how some of this language is used. If we have to pick up a little bit next week, that's uh, fine. But we'll, we'll co cover it, Lord willing, mostly tonight. But, but even just looking at those verses again, as we're about to, to go in, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we'll see, that's everything. You read to the end, that's everything. You read the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, that's everything. Uh, in, uh, in six days, that he's, in this account, he's going to create everything. Uh, the earth... And so now, this is God's creation of the earth. Uh, it just speaks about the state of it. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So that sets up, you know, uh, bringing it to, to completion and uh, in what, uh, what follows. And so uh, what we'll see is there's not this sort of uncontrolled, disorderly, uh, chaos, like in in uh, in that sense, in some like negative sense or anything, but uh, his work is just incomplete. Uh, in fact, you don't see all of the references to these deified entities and such. Uh, part of the reason, maybe multiple reasons, but why he avoids uh, some of the work, the language speaks about the greater light, the lesser light. Now, some of that might be drawing into the tabernacle, but in instead of talking about uh, Hashemesh. Uh, the sun or Hayahreya, uh, um, uh, the moon, is some of that language can even be with the pagan peoples can be associated with their gods. But here it's, it's just the greater light, the lesser light to give light upon the earth. Uh, create, created for man. They're, they're not deities. They're not, uh, they're not these personal agents or entities that God has to subdue or cut apart or you know, anything uh, like that. Uh, but it's God's uh, creation. And so let's look at the language of uh, Tohu and uh, just quickly go to uh, Job 26, verse 7. We'll look at some of the different uh, de definitions uh, here in uh, the uh, Dictionary of Biblical Languages, uh, Hebrew, DBL. Uh, one definition, uh, he, he glosses formless emptiness, and he defines it, a state of empty space and so nothingness. So not having a shape implied to be a state prior to order and form. Uh, but the key part here in the definition, a state of empty space and so nothingness. 
And that's kind of an idea we're going to see come up again and again, the state of empty space and so uh, nothingness. Uh, and so here, actually, I have it right there, but I'll go uh, to the text as well so you can look at a little bit of the context. So we have uh, 26 verse 7. Uh, let's just begin uh, beginning of the chapter. Uh, chapter 26, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, uh, How you have helped him who has no power. Uh, how you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom. And plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words? And whose breath has come out from you? Uh, the dead tremble uh, under the waters uh, and their inhabitants. Uh, or the dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Uh, Sheol is naked before God, the abode of the dead, and uh, Abaddon uh, has no covering. Uh, he stretches out the north uh, over Tohu and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick cloud, uh, and the cloud is not split open under them. Uh, he covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it uh, his cloud. Uh, he has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters. Uh, even that language, it's probably more like a boundary, kind of like regulation. Has inscribed a boundary on the face of the waters at the, the boundary between light and darkness. Uh, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. So speaking about God's understanding uh, and wisdom, by his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Uh, and so all these things. Now he's using poetic language, so you have to be a little careful. You know, we're reading poetry here. Uh, and he uses a lot of, uh, lot of imagery and even draws on some of the uh, mytho-poetic uh, images and uh, things like that. But here in verse 7, he stretches out the north over, the, over Tohu and hangs the earth on nothing. And now they're parallel together. Some take north because uh, Tzaphon, and they try and say it's Mount Tzaphon connected with Hermon, but Tzaphon just means north. Uh, it's used again and again. Uh, we'll look at some of that later in Genesis as we cover some of, some of those things. It just means, uh, means north. And the parallelism here uh, in, in each of them, he stretches out uh, the north over Tohu and hangs the earth on nothing uh, or uh, uh, without not anything. And so, the, you know, uh, for, uh, for the, uh, the earth, that's not nothing, you know, uh, just uh, hanging there. He doesn't hang it on something, you know, in, in, uh, in space, in, in the creation, uh, the, the earth uh, and the, the heavens. And so this parallelism helps give an idea of the north then. Uh, they stretches out. And a lot of times speaking about stretching uses for the heavens. And so you, you have the northern heavens, the northern skies. Uh, and what, what are they stretched upon? 
Tohu. <laughs> I mean, uh, just uh, just picture picture it. Uh, ESV uh, here has uh, the void, but it's 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 an emptiness. It's an empty it's empty space uh, that's uh, vacuous. Uh, and so a state of empty space and so uh, nothingness. You have this vacuous, empty space. The north, uh, the skies, the heavens. They, uh, he stretch, stretches them out over nothing. You know, as far as as far as uh, as far as uh, we can see. Uh, and so, some of the well, uh, the old uh, Tanakh translation has chaos, uh, but the Lexham English Bible emptiness, uh, King James uh, version, empty place, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, empty space. And that's a whole bunch of them too. Uh, uh, by the way, NASB, NET, uh, void, empty space, empty place. You know what's the north? What's the north stretched over? Tohu. Can you picture it and just go look? Nothing. How do you spell that? Tohu. Uh, well, in English you can do uh, yeah, T O H U. And B O H U. Tohu and Bohu. And so uh, here the, the NET talks about, you know, some try and connect it with uh, uh, with the Mount Safon, but in the context, you don't have Mount Hermon that's spoke, spoken about in the context. Uh, and the, the term actually means north. Um, and so uh, the, the rare cases that's used there would be like mountain of the north because it's north of Israel. Um, and so the NET Bible notes say, of course, uh, the word just means north. And so in addition to any connotations for pagan mythology, it may just represent the northern skies, uh, the stars. Uh, since the parallel lines speak of the earth, that is probably all that was intended in this particular context. Uh, and so... Now go to Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. And this one's particularly important because it's uh, connected with the Torah. Torah. And it also uh, connects some of these uh, similar similar ideas that, uh, that we see. Uh, and so you see that God takes uh, Israel as his nation. Uh, he fixed the borders of the peoples of God according to their numbers of the sons of God. Verse 9, uh, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And verse 10, uh, he found him in a desert land uh, and in uh, the tohu, a howling wilderness. Uh, the tohu, a howling a wilderness. Uh, ESV has uh, he found him in a desert land, uh, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Uh, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, uh, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, uh, bearing them on its pinions. Uh, Yahweh alone guided them. And some of that language of a. Uh, fluttering and such, same language that's used for the spirit hovering over the waters. So there are, there are different connections here, uh, and probably some illusion uh, with uh, creation. 
Uh, no foreign god was with them. Uh, he made... Uh, oops, just kind of lost it. Um, he kept uh, him as the apple of his eye, caring for him uh, in this uh, region, like an eagle that stirs up its wings. The Lord alone guided him. Uh, no foreign god was with him. Verse 13, he made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. And so God's provision uh, for his people uh, as they're going to prepare to enter the land, but even through this, the, the wilderness, uh, this uh, barren region, uh, Verse 10, he found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the, the wilderness, or in uh, Tohu, uh, a howling desert, or howling uh, wilderness. And so you see the parallel also with the desert land or the wilderness in the line before. And so it's a region that is largely devoid of population, uh, that it's it's a empty region. We already saw this sort of emptiness, nothingness uh, idea uh, that is uh, barren, not not a fruitful habitation. Uh, but you think of like a, a desert or or a wilderness where not much grows, and uh, there aren't people live, living and uh, tra- traveling through it uh, so much, and there's not much uh, life that it uh, supports, uh, and so. Uh, we see very much uh, similar ideas uh, even here. And so uh, some translations, NIV, uh, barren and howling waste, or uh, this might be a little more uh, literal wooden, Holman Christian Standard Bible, a barren, well, a barren howling wilderness, um, or uh, the NET, uh, an empty howling uh, wasteland. Uh, and so... A region that's uh, either sort of a, a barren land, or sometimes they'll use language of kind of a wasteland uh, that's sort of a desolate uh, region, not supporting a life and not inhabited. That God uh, protected them and uh, cured uh, for them. And uh, here uh, Matthew says, uh, Tohu Vabohu has the same sense in Genesis 1. Uh, characterizing the earth as uninhabitable and inhospitable uh, to human life. Despite the threatening desert, God protects and matures Israel uh, during its troubled times. Uh, Similarly, although the earth as it stood could not support terrestrial life, earthly life, it was no threat to God uh, whose spirit exercised dominion over it. God's purposes were not hindered by tohu. uh, For he did not create the earth to be tohu, but formed it to be uh, inhabited. Uh, and even uh, earlier in uh, Deuteronomy, it sp- speaks about, let's see, in chapter 8, verse 15, and we won't really spend time on it, It's 
speaks about God uh, who brought you, not to forget, yeah. Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, verse 15, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you, but to do you good uh, in the end. And so through this region without water, you know, not a region that's uh, supporting life for so many inhabitants, you know, some of the little desert uh, uh, creatures and creepy crawlies, but uh, not a region that's uh, brimming with life and uh, travelers and civilization and cities or uh, anything like, uh, like that. Uh, the, it's a wilderness place. And so, now we could, we won't really uh, look at these. Let me just read uh, a few from Job 6, verse 18. Uh, it speaks about the caravans turn aside from their course. They go up in the uh, tohu and perish. ESV has a uh, waste. Uh, a lot of them, some, I will say you could maybe have emptiness or whatever, but it's, again, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a barren wilderness uh, land that's uh, described. Uh, Again, in Job 12, verse 24, he takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander uh, in a trackless waste or uh, in a tohu uh, which has uh, no path. And so it's not like a well, there aren't well-worn paths or uh, caravans that travel uh, through, uh, through these lands that, that you go through. And so barren, empty uh, Wilderness environment. Uh, and you even have another in Psalm 107, verse 40. He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. Tohu, uh, which have no path for uh, tracks. And so uh, let's go to Isaiah 45, verses 17 and 18. This one's uh, very important. It's drawing on uh, creation. Applied to the earth as a whole. And so... <clears throat> See, it talks about the, the peoples uh, coming to them. Verse 14, thus says Yahweh, uh, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come to you and be yours. They shall follow you. Uh, they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, uh, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. Uh, the makers of idols go into confusion together. But Israel is saved by, the, by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. So contrasting uh, the makers of idols who go in confusion together versus uh, the God who uh, saves uh, his people. 
God of Israel, the Savior. Uh, And verse 18, For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it tohu. He formed it to be inhabited. And so here he did not create it tohu. He formed it uh, to be uh, inhabited or it speaks about dwelling, uh, in, inhabiting uh, the, uh, the earth. And he is the creator all, over all these things. Uh, in, so this contrast between the two between how he did not create it versus uh, his, his purpose in creating it, uh, informing it uh, to be inhabited, uh, this contrast, it's almost, I mean, almost the opposite would be empty. I mean, emptiness with, without inhabitants. At the very least, uh, a state, state of em- emptiness or not supporting habitation. And so very much what we've seen with these, these barren, empty wildernesses that don't uh, support life and emptiness. Uh, and you even see, you know, at the north that's hung on Tohu. Just a lot of uh, kind of uh, emptiness, you know, up, up there. Uh, yeah? I was just wondering, uh, causes me to think that uh, in the Septuagint, uh, when Jesus is wandering the wilderness, like for the temptation... If the word wilderness in any way relates to the word Tohu, hmm. I kind of wonder about that. Well, we see that uh, some of that language is drawn on in Deuteronomy 30, uh, 32. It's not used in the in the actual like uh, wilderness, uh, and so uh, in some of the stuff with the uh, so-called uh, Septuaginta, the the seventy, uh, with that translation, it has unseen and I'm trying to think of it if it's unformed I'd have to look at uh, the second word again um, and so I'll pin that down a little more but un, unseen you know and so you don't, you don't find that with uh, with Jesus but you do have connections with the, the wilderness account That's what uh, especially connecting back to uh, the, the exodus and traveling through the wilderness and and the temptation of the man and, and the woman uh, as well. And so he did not uh, create it tohu. He, he formed it to be inhabited. Now I think Elm P. Ra, some draw on this and say, see, he didn't create it tohu. And so there must be an earlier creation account. <laughs> it's like, uh, and, and then you'll get some skeptics who say, look, contradiction. Isaiah's looking at the creation as a whole. And God's purpose for creating. If you read to the end of the creation account in Genesis, which there we're just looking at the unfinished creation <laughs> in its initial state, he's going to bring it to completion and inhabited and populated. Uh, and so it's just generalizing, speaking about creation as a whole and God's purpose for it. Uh, and so you, you can speak about God's creation as a whole, creating. Uh, God created uh, all things, the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that are in them. That just generalizes versus uh, going through the details step by step. Uh, so it's bound up with God's uh, purpose. His purpose wasn't for it to be tohu, but to be filled, populated with the luminaries, the fish and the birds, uh, the land animals, and man having uh, dominion over uh, all of it. 
the fruitful habitations. Uh, and he says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, uh, seek me in vain or in tohu. Now, the in part, some, I have to look more at some of the textual issues, you know, how, how they read that. Some will say kind of like an empty land or whatever. Uh, but a lot of times it's used also for um, emptiness, seeking in vain, and it could be playing off of some of these things. It did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in Tohu. Uh, I Yahweh speak the truth. I declare what is right. And a lot of times this language, there's an extension from the physical sort of concrete ideas of uh, emptiness, barren land, then to people's false witness like in a court trial, and uh, they speak words that are tohu. So vacuous, empty, having no truth uh, to them, uh, no, no substance. Uh, and so uh, this contrast between uh, inhabited and tohu, you know, helps, <laughs> helps give perspective and connects with what we've seen. And there are a couple more, I think in Isaiah that I might, might have left out, or one particular that maybe I'll just read next week. But you see that God's judgment even coming like upon the city. And uh, the city is depopulated. It's not, it's not filled with, uh, with, with inhabitants and so kind of like a, uh, you know, a desolate city uh, that uh, after judgment has come upon it, it's deserted. Not filled and brimming with... Uh, with life. And so, uh, let's, yeah, we're, we're going to have to pick up uh, next week. And so, I'll just read a couple, couple of these because we don't really have to uh, get into them. Uh, but in Isaiah 29, verse 21, uh, it speaks about uh, who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate uh, and with an empty plea, or tohu, uh, turn aside him who is in the right. And so their, their plea or their word that they give, it has no, no truth to it. Uh, it's, it's vacuous, it's empty, uh, and so, definition uh, from the DBL lexicon, uh, false testimony, uh, speech which is empty and void of truth. So, false in reasoning or facts. Uh, and again, in Isaiah 59, verse 4, no one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. These are tohu. Uh, they speak lies, they conceive mischief, and give birth to iniquity. And so it's speaking about sort of their uh, truth and moral content, which they lack, that's absent uh, from it. And so even some of these extensions of the idea from the real physical and concrete sort of uh, even wilderness regions or cities that, are, that have been emptied out, uh, then to uh, the very words that are speaking, uh, bearing false witness and false uh, testimony that are tohu. Uh, which even give a little bit of an idea of uh, just seeing how it's kind of extended to other things. Uh, and then Samuel uh, even speaks about 
1 Samuel 12. Uh, verse, will be verse 21. I'll start at 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants uh, to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh uh, with all your heart and do not turn aside after the tohu that cannot profit or deliver for they are tohu. Speaking about the idols, they cannot profit or deliver. Uh, and so kind of like the, the pleas that have, have they're devoid of truth uh, and rightness and good uh, in, the, in the court of law here now speaking about the idols and do not turn aside after the tohu uh, that cannot profit or deliver for they are tohu. Uh, ESV has empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty. Uh, DBL has what is worthless and lacking in value implying very low status in some contexts. Uh, and so again and again, uh, kind of kind of these ideas kind of in the ballpark of emptiness, you know, something that's vacuous. Uh, in kind of these desolate, desolate barren uh, regions. And so uh, n- next week, we'll have to pick up uh, with a very important text in Jeremiah chapter chapter 4. Uh, and uh, we'll get into some other things as well. We won't spend much longer uh, on this, but the, the importance of it uh, is, well, there's a lot of confusion over the language and kind of the context helps shed a lot of light so we can understand what follows. We, we won't normally kind of do word studies uh, like, like this. I usually don't like doing that. But it also really contrasts that we're not dealing with sort of the pagan account of sort of this disorderly evil chaos that God has to subdue or, or something like uh something like that, that that's uh, negative or has evil connotations or uh, that's um, not just maybe it's fine to talk about it's not all ordered yet or unordered but sort of disorder you know that, that God has to stop no this isn't a dualistic account God has created in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth uh, and the earth was tohu and bohu and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and by the end when we get to the end of Day three, uh, he's going to create these fruitful habitations and, and uh, bring light into the darkness, separate uh, the waters, separate the earth from uh, uh, the land, bring forth the dry land, uh, and fill it with vegetation and uh, fruit-bearing plants and trees for his creatures to fill and live uh, in these uh, environments to, to populate. Uh, and so not like uh, the sort of desert, uh, desolate, uh, barren uh, regions, uh, but uh, fruitful, filled uh, habitation. He says that with his blessings to his creatures, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. I'm giving them all the, uh, the food uh, to, to eat. And so uh, th- that's just part, part and parcel of a biblical worldview in contrast uh, to uh, the, the pagan uh, accounts uh, that this is just uh, God's unfinished creation. Uh, it's kind of like a painter uh, who paints a painting you know he's maybe primed the canvas but paints 
uh, it's not ready for, for viewing yet, or, you know, a potter who has the, uh, the lump of clay, you know, it's unfinished on the potter's wheel, but it's not ready for using the, the vessel. You know, he's not, he's not done with it. Or a builder who uh, builds a building, you know, maybe has the, the frame up, but it's not ready for, for living in yet. And so uh, here, it's just incomplete. Uh, and uh, as you're talking about, Paul, you know, when we get into uh, to John 1, and we'll be spending some more time uh, in John uh, just connecting some of these ideas, there you now see uh, the darkness uh, because of man's state of sin and rebellion uh, from, from the garden that Jesus now has to come into. And so it's not his new work of creation isn't just that he needs to, to, to finish the heavens and the earth or something like that, but now uh, to uh, deliver uh, man from his sin, uh, to give eternal life. Uh, the word uh, says in him was uh, life and the life was the, the light of man. Uh, so uh, we'll connect and see how these ideas uh, pick up with uh, rest and such. So let's just close in uh, prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you uh, for your word. Uh, and thank you uh, that you've spoken uh, clearly uh, that we can study and learn and understand your word. Uh, we're grateful that you did not uh, create the, the earth to, uh, to be barren, empty uh, wilderness, but to be uh, filled by, by all of your uh, creatures and for man to rule over. And uh, we're grateful above all for your son, uh, for his death, burial, and resurrection, for uh, his work of salvation, that uh, in him, uh, if we turn from our sin, trust in him, that we have eternal life. Uh, we have uh, stored up with, with him where he's seated thrown to your right hand. We have an eternal inheritance, uh, everlasting kingdom, uh, the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to. And so uh, we look forward uh, to that day and to his coming uh, and pray that uh, that's where our hearts and minds would be and that we'd uh, encourage uh, one another uh, so long as it's still called today. And we uh, pray all these things in his name. Amen.